As always, thanks to those who have led us in worship this morning. Dustin, Jessica, we appreciate your ministry so much. Today we include our summer study of the book of Titus. And let me just thank you for your patient endurance this summer as we've walked through this book together. And I mention your patient endurance because this is the 11th week that uh, Mark has been out of the pulpit uh, and you have just stayed in there, stayed with me, uh, been very encouraging along the way and I appreciate that very much. Mark was in our 945 service, he and Cheryl, um, a few minutes ago uh, and he will be back in the pulpit uh, next week, August 13, um, preaching uh, and 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 really uh, consistently in that place throughout, uh, throughout the fall. The verses that we'll cover today are the Apostle Paul's final word to this young pastor, Titus, which are subsequently his final few thoughts for the churches on the island of Crete. So Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, if you have your Bibles, go ahead. Responsible for, for so many early church congregations. The man taking to me to lead and guide and equip a young man to oversee a struggling church. If I was responsible to... If I had the responsibility to arm the church and its elders against false teachers and ungodliness and lead a church to purity and holiness and virtue and maturity, if it was my responsibility to make sure that the Christians on, on the island of Crete were living distinct from the evil world around them while at the same time reaching the evil world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If all of that... I might have written an entire book. I might have written volumes of books. It amazes me that with the weight of all of this responsibility, the Apostle Paul has wrapped this whole thing up. You can read in eight minutes what I've taken eight weeks to unpack for you. Inspired everything that needed to be said. Every instruction necessary for Titus and Crete that we are calling the book or the epistle to Titus. And I think the brevity of the letter also demonstrates that, Paul, why do I say that? Well, because Paul doesn't go overboard in supplying Titus with a lot of doctrine. Paul, he skips a lot of theological material and addresses the issues which are most pressing to this young pastor and the task last week. But it's not primarily concerned with doctrine, the way that Romans... And if we were to sum up the whole epistle in just one statement we would probably have to select the statement in chapter so that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. What does that mean exactly? It means there to be people who believe the right things about Jesus and the gospel, and those beliefs are to then lead them to live lives marked by good works, by good deeds. Said more profoundly, the faithful life of the Christian can actually beautify the most beautiful message in the world. So to reflect verse 10 of chapter 2, we've been calling this sermon series R&R, which stands for rooted and ready. Rooted in the gospel, ready for good works. And that same theme shows up again in Paul's final word. Let's read it together. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. We'll go to the end of the book. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, 
he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to spend Zenus the lawyer, speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. So as people who believe that salvation is by grace and not by human effort, as people who believe in God's, that it is God's sovereign mercy that saves us and not our righteous deeds, what do we do with an epistle with such a strong emphasis on good works? How do we talk about the urgent need for good works in the Christian life without sounding like they are requisite for salvation? Well, when it comes to Titus, I think we take a small step back and we look at the original, or the original audience of this letter. This letter is to Titus, but its direct application is for a church or for churches on Crete that desperately need to be distinct from the culture. The culture in Crete is rotten. It's notoriously immoral. It's filled with liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And the last thing Paul wants to see in Crete is a church that looks like the Cretans. So the first word to Titus in Crete is you need to put things in order. The church is not in order. Your first and primary task is to put things in order. And you're going to do that by appointing elders in every church. Churches are the place where people are going to be fed the word of God, where they're going to gather and fellowship with the people of God, where they'll take communion and worship and learn sound doctrine. For the church to look the way it needs to look, it has to have the right kind of leaders. So chapter 1 tells us what those leaders should look like, what kind of men they need to be. And they don't have to be charismatic leaders. They don't have to be good up front or have certain physical characteristics, none of that. They need to be spiritual men. Men of prayer and integrity, above reproach, and above all, Paul says these elders that Titus is to appoint, they must be men who hold fast to the trustworthy word. They must be committed to the importance of sound doctrine and be able to give instruction in the truth. Charles Smith, a professor at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, he tweeted this recently, and it fits perfectly into this point. He said, The primary task of Christian leadership is to teach the Word of God. It is often more than that, but it is never less than that. And that underscores the work of an elder, a man absolutely committed to the Word of God. And just to outline Titus for us a little bit here before we get going into this final message, chapter 1 is concerned about the relationship of the people in the church to the Lord of the church. And it focuses on the church's relationship to the Lord as modeled and exemplified by the church's leadership. So that's the relationship on display in chapter 1. In chapter 2, the relationship is, that's highlighted is, is the relationships among believers with each other. So older men and older women and younger women and younger men and children and slaves, all of these different groups in the church, how they are to interact and have meaningful relationship with one another. That's the bulk of chapter two. Then chapter three talks about the relationship that believers have with the broader culture, with the society in which they live. 
how they're to interact with their governing authorities, how they're to interact with people that might be hostile toward what they believe. So it's these three crucial areas of relationship that we have in Titus, between us and God, between us and us, and between us and them. All of that has been covered in these three brief chapters. But now as we come to this final section, here we have, Paul, here we have his closing comments, and in these comments, he gives a final word to four groups, really. To false teachers, or what we, we might reclassify as foolish teaching, to factious people, to fellow servants, and to faithful friends. So the final word on false teachers, let's start there. Last week we finished with verse 8. Verse 8, where the directive from Paul was, insist on these things. What are we insisting on? We're insisting on the wonderful gospel truths that are articulated in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 3. Don't stop declaring them. Insist upon them. But in verse 9, he pivots from insist to shun. Verse 9 reads, But shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. It's no mystery that there were false teachers in Crete. The the Cretan church was in disorder. It had bad leaders who taught bad, foolish things. Paul describes these teachers in chapter 1, verse 16. He tells us they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. He could not, Paul could not have a lower opinion of these teachers. And as we look at verse 9 of chapter 3, here's the last word concerning these teachers and the foolish things that they are propagating. The last word is a verb. It's a verb in the form of of an imperative or a command. I've already said it. It's that word shun. And the tense here points to a continual practice. Shun them. Shun their teaching. Shun the foolishness foolishness, and don't stop shunning it. The, The verb literally means to turn your back on them and go the other way. Turn yourself around and just avoid the foolishness entirely. This is maybe not the best illustration, but I think you'll be able to grasp the visual. And maybe you're not like me. Maybe you don't do this. But have you ever been at the grocery store or some other place and you see someone that you know and you don't really want to visit, so you just turn the other way? (laughs) You go down the other aisle. You peek down the next aisle to make sure they're not there. You get your items, you get to the checkout, and you leave as soon as possible. Maybe you're not like me, but sometimes that happens. The responsibility we have toward foolish teaching and false teachers is is to turn our back and to walk away. It's to avoid them. That's the last word. Absolutely, the church is to be a loving, embracing, accepting community. We're to throw our arms open wide to any and all people, but if someone comes in and tries to, with any kind of authority, teach things which are not true, propagate some foolish idea, we treat them according to verse 9. We shun them. And you can see Paul describes these teachers and their teaching using four categories. First, he talks about foolish controversies. The word for foolish is the word from which we get the English word moron. 
So these are moronic debates. These are moronic arguments. Shun them. Turn your back and walk the other direction. These false teachers want to amplify issues or investigate ideas that are, that are nonsense. They just don't matter. Which, this is actually a danger for the church in any generation. I mean, how many times have you heard the stories? The, the stories about churches who are, who are fighting over things that don't matter. Carpet color, the name on the sign, musical instruments, whatever. Dwight Pentecost, a longtime professor at Dallas Seminary, he tells the story of a church split that was so serious, each side filed a lawsuit to dispossess the other of the church and its assets. And the local judge, he threw out the case, causing the feud to eventually come before a, a panel of denominational leaders. And in the course of those proceedings, the panel discovered that the conflict had originally begun at a church dinner when an older church member received a smaller slice of ham than the child who was seated next to him. That's how it started, and it escalated from there. The church split, resulting in two divided congregations. If a church cares about anything more than the glory of God and the preaching of the gospel, that church is going to find itself distracted by foolish controversies. Paul says, avoid that stuff. Shun it. The second category of false teaching that Paul identifies is under the term genealogies. These teachers were obsessed with genealogies. Anybody got a family member obsessed with genealogy? Ancestry, all these kinds of things? I do too. I, I got a sister who sends me pictures of headstones that she's found in rural Kentucky. She's cruising cemeteries looking for old family members. It's really odd. And maybe you do this, and I'm not trying to condemn it. But, but the great-great-uncle on our dad's side, I'm really not sure we're related to him. Maybe we are by some tangential uh, connection, but I certainly don't need to see his grave marker. A fun hobby, certainly nothing to uh, condemn. And genealogy for many is, is fascinating, and there's an aspect of it which I actually am intrigued by. But these teachers, they're using gene genealogies not as a hobby, not as an interest, but as something that's dividing the church. And you hear me say that, and you read that here in Titus, and you think, well, does that mean we're not, we're not to bother with certain parts of, of Genesis or First Chronicles? Are we not supposed to study the genealogy that's laid out in Matthew or Luke? Is that what Paul is telling Titus to do here? It doesn't mean that. What this has to do with was, was some wild allegorical interpretations of the Old Testament genealogies. In the first century, there was a lot of this going on, and instead of just taking the, the, the genealogical material in the Old Testament at, at face value, as, as history, that so-and-so begot so-and-so that begot so-and-so, instead of looking at these things for what they were, which is basically a tribal record, there were those who looked at these genealogies and, and they read into them all kinds of crazy mystical interpretations. There's an ancient text called the Book of Jubilees. It's one that contains many of these genealogical speculations. And in it, instead of tracing the heritage of the family and the tribes, this volume devises, devises a number of these bizarre allegories. And from these allegories... You have fables and legends that have spun up, and, and out of that, whole religious systems were concocted, and Paul says, that is a waste of time. 
don't go there. The only genealogical detail that matters for eternity is whether we are related to Jesus Christ by faith. And in so, be- and in so believing, we have become children of God, children born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. That's the genealogy we care about in the church. That's who you're to be connected to, to Christ by faith. It's the only thing that matters. I know people come into the church a lot of times and they feel like they're, they're outsiders. They, they feel like they can't really get connected in a meaningful way. That There's sort of a, a heritage here or there's a lineage here that for them is not to be broken into. Let me just say, the gospel proclaims very clearly that anyone can get in on this. It's not not about your lineage. It's not about your heritage. It's not about any of these genealogical details. It's about Christ. It's about looking to him and what he has done, trusting in him to be your sin bearer and your salvation uh, from hell. Anyone can get in on this. If you need to get in on this today, get in on it now. Don't put it off. Transfer your trust from whatever it is you're putting your hope in and put it on Christ. He can take it. He can handle it. Thirdly, Paul, Paul mentions strife. Eris in the Greek means wrangling, means contention. These are teachers who cause almost constant friction and trouble. They're constantly battling and sparring. They're trying to be divisive. These are conceited men who want to wrangle. They want to pick fights. They want to start disputes that are designed to destroy the confidence that the, that the saints might have in the truth of the scriptures. He says, shun, shun that stuff. Get away from the strife. It's not helping. It's not leading us anywhere good. And then he unearths an even more specific thing to avoid in the fourth, in the fourth category. Disputes about the law. He also touches on this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He identifies some false teachers there who wanted to be teachers of the law, and Paul calls it there what they're doing. He calls them fruitless discussions, so kind of similar language. He goes on to say that these men, they wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand what they were saying or the matters about which they were making confident assertions. So they were dogmatic about what they didn't even know. They were rigid about things they They didn't even come close to understanding. This is very common in the first century church. Teachers who who didn't realize, they didn't grasp the function of God's law. That it was not something that could save them, but rather it was something that showed them their need to be saved. Paul says that's another category to avoid. These people that are caught up in the law and how to apply it and how to use it and, and, and how to live up to it, to sort of add to the finished work of Christ, get away from that. It's not Jesus Christ plus some of these Old Testament laws that equals salvation. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing else that equals our salvation. And just to conclude this first point, I think there is still, uh, there is a desire in our day to be intrigued with teaching that seems novel, Maybe it seems edgy or progressive or very open-minded, but what we need to remember is that there's nothing new under the sun. 
The, the same heresies, the same foolishness is recycled every other generation, and we do better to avoid these things and to avoid those who try to propagate them in our midst. Paul moves from false teachers to giving the last word now to factious people. Verses 10 and 11, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now, this certainly could refer to those we've just now been talking about, those who are preoccupied with foolish controversies and genealogies and disputes about the law. But what Paul is talking about here with the factious man is actually beyond that. It goes beyond the categories of empty teaching. It's anybody whose motive is to divide the fellowship. Anyone who seeks to tear the seamless robe, as it were. Anyone who knowingly seeks to, to cause disunity in the church. They're not just propagating a bunch of foolish nonsense. Their, their heart is to see the church divided. The term here for a factious man is hereticos, from which we get our English term heretic. It's the only time in Scripture that hereticos or factious is used as an adjective, a factious man. And it's used here to mean one who, is, who has chosen an idea, one who has chosen a teaching, a doctrine, a viewpoint, a perspective, a preference, some course of behavior that is just not acceptable to the church. It's not acceptable to the word of God and to the work of the Spirit as revealed to the elders in a church. So a factious man is one who chooses not to be a part of the consensus. He will not submit to the word. He will not submit to the leadership. He's going to seek others to join him in his factious cause. So what do we do with this guy? Well, the verb there says reject him. Reject. That's the last word. Have nothing to do with him. It's very much like Matthew 18, 17. Let him be to you as a pagan or an outcast. Cut him off from the fellowship. And this is a form of what we normally refer to as church discipline. And in fact, if you look at verse 10, it says, you're not to do this unless you have given, first, unless you have given a first and then a second warning. You're basically following the outline of Matthew chapter 18. You go to the person, he or she doesn't repent. You go with two or three others, the person still doesn't repent. You tell the whole church family, and ultimately, with no repentance, you treat the factious man as an outsider. It isn't that you want to put a person like this out of fellowship. No, not at all. You, you love him. You want him to repent. You want him to be restored. The goal of church discipline is not to be punitive. Never. It's to be restorative. Its goal is redemption. And so you would go to this individual and, and, and you would be gentle and you would be loving and you would communicate great care and perhaps God will grant him repentance and you will have gained your brother. And that's why you go through a process. And the word warning here, it comes from the Greek verb nutheo. Nutheo, we sometimes use the word nuthetic to speak about counseling. So this is a gentle kind of warning. It's telling someone, you, you better change direction because the end of your course is very dangerous. Consider this a warning. And if their course can't be corrected, they're to be rejected. But again, it's not something that we're hasty about. We're direct, but we're not hasty about it. And we do all of this because of what we know. Look at verse 11. Knowing, 
which means it's clear to everybody. This is observable. Knowing that such a man is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. So it's obvious that we should confront a person like this. It's apparent to everybody by observation that his character is awful, that he is warped. It's a strong term there. It could be translated perverse. It's used in, in, in medical literature as, as the term dislocated. This warped, perverse, dislocated man. It's obvious that he needs help. There's a somewhat humorous story from Chuck Swindoll. He's commenting on this verse, and, and he wrote that he was aware of two seminary students who were, who were disciplined by the administration after their quarrel over the doctrine of sanctification, sanctification it ended in a fist fight. <laughs> Which is ironic, right? Arguing over the surrendering of your life to the Holy Spirit <laughs> And his growth and, and, and making you more holy, that, that ends in, in punches being thrown. It's crazy. These were factious men, I think, that, that Swindoll was dealing with. The factious person, distorted, twisted, perverted. He has the truth. He's been told the truth. He's, he's been warned again and again and again. And, 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 and if he doesn't respond to confrontation, he's rejected. And those who are in party with him are rejected as well. And some of you are like, man, that still seems a little harsh, right? Well, not really. Stop and think about our context again. Stop and think about Crete. Titus could not let these characters remain in the church. His charge was to put things in order. The church's influence depended on its faithfulness to these commands, church health, evangelistic effort. Most importantly, God's glory is what is at stake and so to deal directly and succinctly with these matters is what is needed. So with the time we have left, let's move to the positive notes here. Paul's final word to first fellow servants. It is Paul's desire to team back up with Titus. So after Titus does the hard work of putting the churches of Crete in order, one of two men, either Artemis or Tychicus, is going to show up and send Titus back to Paul. Paul does not want to leave the Cretan church without strong leadership, so he's sending another good leader to oversee the work accomplished by our man Titus. And one of these guys is just going to continue to develop the elders that Titus would have appointed. And who are these guys? Artemis, Tychicus. Artemis, we don't really know anything about him. This is the only time he's mentioned in the New Testament. His, his name is Greek. It's the masculine form of Artemis, who was the goddess whose temple in Ephesus was one of the ancient wonders, or one of the wonders of the ancient world. So, but we don't really know who he is. This, is. this is our only record of him. He must have been a good man because it's a toss-up to either send him or Tychicus. Not sure which. And Tychicus, gosh, he has a great testimony. He accompanied Paul on a missionary journey from Corinth to Asia Minor. We can read about that in Acts chapter 20. He was the man who delivered Paul's letters to the Ephesian church and to the Colossian church. He's described in some very glowing terms at the end of those epistles. 2 Timothy chapter 4 indicates that Tychicus was sent to Ephesus to replace Timothy. That was one of his eventual destinations. Ephesus, one of the most prominent churches in the first centuries, one of the most prominent cities in the first century, Tychicus went on to be a key leader 
there. He replaced Timothy. Here he may be replacing Titus. So I feel like Tychicus was on Paul's sort of short list of go-to guys. You had Titus and Timothy and Tychicus. Helped if your name started with the letter T, I guess. Paul, like Mark Hitchcock, he had this thing for alliteration. If you know Mark's outlines, they're always alliterated. Mine is today as well, just in keeping with that. A couple of other good names in verse 13, Zenos and Apollos. These are the guys who most likely delivered this letter to Titus, so they're the couriers. They're the ones that brought it to Crete. Zenos was a lawyer. He's the only Christian lawyer mentioned in Scripture. So it is possible for, a, for, for lawyers to be Christians. We have this example in Zenos. I think if I ever had a law firm, which I never will, but if I ever did, it's fun to think about, I would, I would name it Zenos and Zenos, just as a, just as a pointer to, uh, to Titus 3.13. And then Apollos, who was with Zenos, Paulus was a great preacher from Alexandria. Acts, 8, Acts chapter 18 describes him as mighty in the scriptures. He was one who had just been following John the Baptist, hadn't been following Jesus. But then in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila share with him the gospel, share with him the truth about Jesus, and he is converted, goes on to do good work in Corinth, had a tremendous ministry there. And there was a dispute, obviously, between the body. Some were on the side of Apollos and some on Paul. They tried to divide or pit those two leaders against each other. Paul had none of that. He had nothing but love and admiration for Apollos, which is why he says to Titus, pull together, pull together whatever it is that these two men need. Give, get, get the people to give of their resources so that these guys can get where they need to be going. We don't know where they're going. Paul likely does but he does not want them to lack anything on their journey. And I know that these are concluding verses. This doesn't seem to be interesting material. You may not normally pay attention to these kinds of things, but I love this stuff. I love it because I love to see how Paul is directing and caring for his fellow servants. I love it because it places Scripture in a kind of very real context in which good ministry work is happening. Paul loves these guys. He respects them. He appreciates what they are doing, and he wants to make sure that they care for one another and mutually support one another, that they cheer one another on. I just think at this point, I think about Haley Newsom, who's been on staff with Crusade for a number of years now, Anna Overholzer and Brian Smith, Tanya Zuniga, some of our Stumo missionaries, that have been on staff for a good number of years. We love these laborers. They have a close connection to our church. We've sent them out from this place. Their well-being is very important to us. We love it when they come back and we're able to spend time with them or we're able to go to them and, and, and see them and encourage them in what they are doing. This is why he wants Titus to meet him in Nicopolis. His well-being, Titus's, it's important to Paul. He wants to be with him. He wants to hear about the work. And we don't know where Nicopolis is located exactly, mainly because there were, there were about nine cities in the ancient world called Nicopolis. Nike is the Greek word for victory, and, and the generals of Alexander the Great would conquer a city, and then they'd rename it. And many of those cities, if not named for the general who conquered it, they were named for the victory, so a victory city, Nicopolis. 
But Nicopolis is where Paul wanted Titus to spend time with him, wanted him to spend the winter there, probably in a warmer climate, so they could strengthen one another in the Lord. And from there, we know that Titus would wind up serving in Dalmatia, which is in the Balkan region, the former Yugoslavia. We know that from reading 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last word written by the hand of Paul, it outlines Titus' continued ministry in this, in this Balkan region. At least that's what we would call it today. Now we go to faithful friends. The last word for faithful friends. Verse 14, and let our people also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. And with this, we come right down to the congregational level. Titus, Paul says, tell everybody to help each other. Paul here turns to the people. He turns to the congregation. You need to learn to engage in good deeds, which that's something he's been saying repeatedly through the whole letter. I've been like a broken record up here these eight weeks. Verse 1, chapter 3, be ready for every good deed. Verse 8, chapter 3, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good deeds. Verse 12 of chapter 2, deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Why? Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Because God is purifying for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Here, he again is telling the whole congregation, engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. Don't miss the fact that this encouragement toward good deeds is not just for Titus and the elders that he appoints. This is for the entire church. One of the keys to a church being a church is the commitment of its membership to meeting each other's needs, both physical and, and spiritual. This commitment is not just the role of the staff. It's not just the role of the elders. We're all to get in on this. I like what John MacArthur says to this point. He says, it is not possible for a pastor or even a team of pastors in a large church to meet all the many pressing needs of a congregation. Not only is there not enough time for one man to do it all, but other believers in the church invariably have spiritual gifts and abilities that the pastor does not have by which certain good deeds can be accomplished and certain pressing needs of fellow believers can be met. So the last word to all of you is that you are to learn to do good, good deeds to meet pressing needs. And good deeds do not consist of a stuffy, sort of prudish approach to outward morality. That's not what Paul is referring to here. When Paul talks about good deeds, he's, he's not referring to what sins you avoid. Not that those testimonies aren't important. They are. What he's really talking about, though, are the actions and services you perform that benefit other people. Pour your life into each other so that you'll be full of fruit and that the world will know that you live for Christ and not for yourself. Because who does the, who does the world live for? They live for themselves. People that live for others, people that live for the glory of God, they are odd. And so it's a wonderful testimony when we live life this way. Hundreds of ways 
in which we could do this. I see you do it all the time, really. Taking meals to each other as you have need. Helping each other when you are sick. Sharing resources when you see that someone has some need that can be met by you. Sacrificing some of what you have because of what maybe others don't have. All the time this is going on in our church. All the time this activity should be going on, should be growing, bringing groceries to a new family, helping somebody move in, coming alongside that person who we know is maybe in a, in a state of depression. Good deeds that meet pressing needs. Then Paul writes, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Paul's saying, I'm with a group of folks over here who love you, and I know that you've got a group of folks over there who love us. That's the essence of that, of that sentence. And so the final word for faithful friends is express and show your love to each other. Show it. Make it clear. Be that kind of encourager where there is no doubt that you love and are loved by the people you're in fellowship with. And then the only way to pull off any of this is his final conclusion. Grace be with you all. The pronoun is plural, so this is one of Paul's southern phrases. He's saying, grace be with all y'all. <laughs> Titus, grace to you. Grace to the elders you appoint. Grace to the people in the churches. All y'all. Grace be with you. And he closes with grace because apart from God's grace, none of this can happen. Order in the church, good elders, the rebuking of false teachers, meaningful discipleship, submission, good works. It's grace that accomplishes all these things. It's grace that's going to get them to where they need to be. It's grace that will get us where we need to be. Christianity is not difficult. It's impossible apart from grace. Just like salvation. If it, if it were not for grace, none of us would be saved. And if it were not for grace, none of us would be sanctified in the way that Paul has described here. It's been a good letter to study. It's been a good reminder that we are called to be people who are rooted in the gospel, that we're to believe and love and just adore the wonderful truth about Jesus Christ who saved us from our sin. But not stopping there, the natural outflow is that we are also people ready for good works, rooted and ready by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, we acknowledge together that your Holy Spirit inspired these texts in front of us. And this is uh, evidenced by the fact that a letter written 2,000 years ago to a certain church in a particular context just has incredible application for our church 
2,000 years later in Edmond, Oklahoma. God, that's miraculous. That can only be accomplished by the work of your hand. And so, God, we pray together that we would be a people just rooted in the truth of the gospel. That, that your goodness and your loving kindness, which appeared in Jesus Christ, the grace that showed up justifying us, not by our works, but by his own righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would insist on that, that we would encourage each other with that great truth that we would declare it continually to our own hearts and to each other. Lord, and from that, we would be people ready, ready to love each other and serve each other and give to each other. And in so doing, the world would look upon what's going on here and they would be just awestruck by the compelling community we have. And they may not agree with a single thing we believe, but they cannot deny the way we live and interact with each other and the world around us. It's grace we need to fulfill these things, and so we look to you for that today. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for this time, this place, what we've been able to do here together. We pray you were glorified. In Christ's name, amen.